Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this show is Alan Farrington, long time and well-known Bitcoiner and author of Bitcoin is Venice. His original article dropped, uh, I don't know, 18 months ago, I would say, something like that. And he went ahead and turned it into a book with a co-writer too. We get into the book here in this interview and we just, we kind of, we want to discover, we want to go down the rabbit hole of what is capitalism and have we ever lived under it. And that is what the book is also trying to discover. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Alan. And if you are, this is your first time listening, you're in for a treat and make sure you get uh, a ticket to get along to one of the, uh, the conferences where Alan invariably pops up and uh, gives a, uh, a talk. Last year he was at the uh, the, the, uh, the Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin conference held by Hoddle Hoddle in Riga where he gave a talk on uh, Bitcoin is Halal, which is also very interesting. Hoddle Hoddle are throwing that conference again this year and you can get 10% off. It's happening first week of September. Use the code BITTEN. Just hit the link in the show notes as well to check out Hoddle Hoddle and their global trading lending platform where you can save yourself on commissions if you use that link and uh, perhaps hit in the code there, Bitten, if you are prompted. Also, be stacking sats with swanbitcoin.com forward slash Bitten. They have you covered in the US and it's very easy to stack Bitcoin with these guys. They've made it seamless and the education behind it is also very good. They're an excellent, well-known, well-tried, well-tested group of Bitcoiners and they're there on your side. They can also give you a white glove service and help you with your 401ks and your Roth IRAs and all of that other good stuff you have over in the US. Uh, in Relay, relay.ch forward slash Bitten, you can save yourself uh, commission by using the code Bitten when you download and start using the app. You can smash by up to a 1,000 Swiss or equivalent per day using that service with no KYC. That's a very interesting prospect, especially if you're in the UK where you're losing services at the moment on how to stack Bitcoin. If you link that account to a Revolut account, you can change your sterling into euros and then smash buy or set up your dollar cost average, I mean pound cost average uh, payments into Bitcoin via Relay. So that's relay.ch forward slash Bitten. They also have Relay Private and Relay for Business. Coin Corner do have you covered in the UK. They are an exchange based out of the Isle of Man and you can use euros or sterling with them for direct transfers and set up your auto buys. You can also download their app and link your account and then use their bolt card as well. If you get yourself a bolt card, you can link that to your account and you can be using Lightning or withdrawing via Lightning directly from your linked account as well. They are great places for you all to start stacking your sats. 
make sure you're looking into the possibilities of CoinJoin, whether this is something you do or you do not want to do. Very important, everybody does their own research. Wasabi Wallet do offer you a service. WasabiWallet.io is downloaded on your desktop. You can download that for free, create a wallet, and start pulling some Satoshis off the exchanges or apps and using that CoinJoin service to up your privacy. That's WasabiWallet.io. Now, cold storage is the name of the game. Everybody, please make sure you are getting yourself, if you have not already, a hardware wallet. You can use the Bitbox 02 by Shift Crypto, who have just rebranded to Bitbox. So I'll try and get the new link in the show notes. The old one will still work if that is in there, but you will have to put in the code BITTEN to get yourself a 5% discount on the Bitbox to make sure you are stacking your sats as safely as you can. Make sure you get to a conference. BTC Prague is just around the corner. You can use the code BITTEN and hit the link in the show notes. So just go to btcprague.com. You'll get 10% off. And Liberty in our lifetime towards the end of this year, that's going to be middle of October, put on by the Free Cities Foundation, where you can meet people uh, who are building parallel structures in all walks of life. You can use the code BITTEN there to get yourself a discount. That is being also held in Prague. So I think that's everyone, except Orange Pill App. But you all know about Orange Pill App and why you should be joining Orange Pill App so you can find your people and not be lonely anymore as a Bitcoiner. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this rip with Alan as we talk about Bitcoin is better. All right, we're recording straight into it. Alan Farrington, welcome to the Once Bitten podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Lauren is here. She's uh, sat here, ready, eager, waiting to ask you the first question. So, um, you doing why? big cop, bad cop? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah basically. Um, bad cop is the. It's like an act. Actually, it's more like a ventriloquist act because she literally is sitting on my knee right now. I think that's a office chair. Come on. You do. Well, if you, uh, you're not a real Bitcoiner if you're thinking about buying chairs. What? Ask Alan. That can be your first question. <laughs> Okay, well, what does my dad mean? I'm also on a chair. I mean, I, there's, I can see quite a few chairs here, so I don't think I'm the best to, to make that case. Okay. There's, a, there's a meme in the Bitcoin space uh, about um, sell all of your things so you can buy as many Satoshis as possible. Oh. And it was started by Pierre, who you met in Biarritz. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. All right, well, ask Alan your actual question. So why is Bitcoin various? Why is, ah, okay, good question. I don't think there's really a simple answer for that because kind of the point of saying that is to be sort of provocative and kind of pretentious as well. And it's sort of more to make the reader think about why that might be the case. I think the the simplest answer, where where I got the idea in the first place, is that there's a really nice similarity between uh, late medieval Venice and Bitcoin, well, I guess now, Bitcoin now, in that both are very, very easy to defend to the point of being nearly impossible to attack. And obviously for completely different reasons, like the claim isn't that, you know, Bitcoin is a city or, a, or I don't know, really anything else that, that you, would, you would say is literally the case of, of Venice. 
Um, but it's nice because I think it leads to a lot of not identical, but I guess similar traits in these systems or ecosystems, if you want to think of it that way. Um, in that given it's so difficult to attack, there isn't really any incentive or there's a strong disincentive for violence as a way of getting what you want within the system. And so both, well, obviously we know for hundreds of years of, of Venice's history, but it's going that you're strongly encouraged to engage with others within the system peacefully and cool and basically to trade and to and to build up commerce rather than to try to be political like being political doesn't really get you very far there's a bunch of other stuff that's like even more weird comparisons but that that idea was what got me on this train in the first place yeah. we've not been to venice have we so we i'd love to go uh wait we've been to rome mm -hmm. yeah i've not yeah. been to rome actually but i did go to venice i had this idea in venice that's where this all came from <laughs> which that is an interesting story in itself i think if i get this right i think you were there during a little bit of covid madness and you kind of no had no it no? was it was before that it was i think 2019 mm -hmm. yeah it was like may or june 2019 right i don't think i really went anywhere in covid madness uh you're for the most part not allowed to <laughs> Yeah, uh, I went. I went back and forth to Bulgaria a few times because my wife's Bulgarian, and we had a bit of a scare of maybe not being able to have the wedding there. But that all went, that all went to plan. So that was okay. But you have an epiphanies whilst you were walking around Venice. You, you, you've either told me this story before, or I've heard you tell it. Or like, uh, maybe I might have told you a story. I'm not sure. It's, I mean, it's not really a story. It doesn't have much. It's like a plot or anything. But um, I think it was partly when I was there. So, so yeah, what happened was that basically we went there just as like a city break, like a long weekend kind of thing. It was, I, I honestly think it was just the cheapest flight on Ryanair. That's like why this came about. It right. wasn't that I, you know, desperately wanted to go and then, you know, write this essay and write this book and so on. And we went there for no particular reason and it was lovely. And I realized when you're walking around because it's, it's incredibly well preserved. It's probably of any uh city of historic significance that i've ever been to i think five months ago and yet just preserve it really really i i guess like probably a component of that the the city the or the medieval city the whole city is is quite small and it's an island right or it's like a series of little islands so it's uh uh on the and and sort of expanded that way but then the the medieval town uh has magnet effectively um, which is then used to keep it that way. So anyway, so I, when I went there, oh no. Yeah, we dropped out. <laughs> oh no. It, don't know if it was our side or your side, but yeah, you were explaining Venice and how you were walking around. We were all good up, up until that point. Okay, so walking around Venice, right. So yeah, walking around Venice, very, very historic, very, very well preserved. 
probably better preserved than any other city of like historic significance. I think it's probably the last thing I said before we dropped off uh, that, that I had been to. And I realized when we were walking around that because you, this is just unmissable, like you can't help but notice how rich the history is, uh, that I just didn't actually know all that much about it. And I was kind of embarrassed because um, you know, it just never occurred to me to really learn about this. So I learned a little bit while I was there because again, you can't really avoid it. If you're doing anything remotely touristy, then you know the things you're seeing are probably at least four or 500 years old. So you get a, a bit of it that way. But then when I came back, uh, I, this this was still bugging me. So I just got a couple of history books on Venice and read them over the next I don't know, month, couple of months. And that's when I, I kind of like how almost serendipitous it all was because until that point, I had no idea that there'd be any connection to, to Bitcoin. I, I wasn't, you know, looking for that. I wasn't trying to find that. But then the point I mentioned before about the the intense difficulty of attacking and you know being very easy to defend and then commerce flourishing as a result, that seemed like I couldn't help but notice that. And and from that point on, I was trying to tease it out a bit more. <laughs> Um, but it was nice though, because yeah, it's, it, it all came from a, a completely pretty, pretty random, pretty unintentional holiday. So you know, thanks, Ryanair. Good yeah. job. <laughs> when will they start accepting Bitcoin? Come on, Ryanair. <laughs> yeah. but do you want to say goodbye? Uh, yeah. So bye. Thank you. Bye, Lauren. So before we um, we, we get into the book and the, uh, the articles and, and everything else, I think it's probably a good idea just to get a little bit of your backstory. We, we, we have to be kind of cognizant that uh, there are new people joining the space all of the time. This could be the first time they're tuning into this podcast, might be the first time they've uh, come across you and, and your work. So people are always interested to find out how people were led to the Bitcoin mm. rabbit hole. So yeah. what were you doing pre-Bitcoin in your <laughs> yeah. in your fiat life? You'd, you'd kind of left university, done all the good stuff, uh, yeah. what, what, what did you study and, and where did you find yourself? So, yeah, my, my rabbit hole story, I've told this a couple of times. It, it's not that exciting, to be honest. I've heard like there's other people who are, uh, I, I guess, tend to have a lot more of like a light bulb moment. And, you know, that what led to that is super interesting. In my case, it's it's quite a long story, actually, at least compared to most people, because there was no single moment. Um, and it, it was a very slow burn. I think there was just lots of things that stacked up over years and years. So I first encountered it. I, I actually don't even remember exactly when it's one of these weird things where I remember the circumstances I was in, but I don't remember like the month say, or even the year actually. Cause I know, <laughs> I know what year I was in as an undergraduate. So I know it was either 2013 or 2014, but I don't remember more precisely than that. Um, the, the nice thing was though, that I, I feel like I was really very lucky in the various influences I'd had up to that point that made me take Bitcoin seriously. Um, and there's, a, there's an article I always like to cite at this point and kind of recounting this, which, which came way later, but it's, it's worth a read for sure. I, th I think it was maybe 2016 or 2017 guy called Jameson Locke, who's very much like a Bitcoin OG, very kind of technically astute. Um, he wrote this article called uh, Nobody Understands Bitcoin, and that's okay, which I highly recommend. I, I mean, I recommend it just for the, the message in the title as much as everything else. But I feel like that's important to cite because I, I don't want to give the impression that like, oh, I came across Bitcoin. And I was like, ah, perfect. I get this. I, this is what I will do from now on, because that's that's not at all what I mean. What what I mean is, is, is really more like, 
I didn't dismiss it, which I think is what most people do. Like, I think the vast, vast majority of people, when they first come across Bitcoin, they dismiss it. Even a lot of Bitcoiners, I think, or, you know, now Bitcoiners will dismiss it at first and then come back a few years later. And I was very, very lucky in the influences that I had that led me to not dismiss it, which I think is key. So, and there's quite a few of these. It's, it is actually remarkable, like how lucky I think I was in hindsight. So at the time I was an undergrad, I was studying maths and philosophy. Both of those are helpful in their own way, probably pretty obviously. The only real job I'd had at that point, so I'm, I'm not counting like minimum wage jobs, like I worked in a burger store and stuff like that and parked cars, like not that, like only real job I'd had was as a software engineer. That's obviously very helpful as well. Uh, completely coincidentally, I was very well read in Austrian economics, obviously very helpful. And then the final is maybe not as important as the others, but it's, it's, it's interesting. It's proved useful. I think is that I had started a business in, uh, when I was in uni, um, and it wasn't all that successful, but still, you know, the experience of having like dabbled in, uh, being an entrepreneur, I think is, is helpful, at least for your, for your mindset. Um, the only issue was though that because I was a student, I had no money whatsoever. And actually, I kind of like to say that I had a I had a large amount of negative money, so I couldn't buy any Bitcoin. I mean, I probably in hindsight, I probably could have bought some completely trivial amount, um, but it was you know because I didn't fully understand it. I was just like, oh, this is interesting. I'll like keep track of this. I wasn't that motivated to buy it. Um, so then, fast forward a couple of years, I left. I graduated in twenty fifteen. Got a job in finance. Interestingly, uh, Bitcoin wasn't really that relevant to it. So in, in, I guess, more than one sense. So at the time, I didn't think it was relevant at all. That wasn't really a reflection of me just not understanding it. Like it was precisely what this job was, which is basically, um, I'll try to keep the jargon out of it for people who like don't really aren't familiar with, with TradFi, but it was investing in companies, basically. Um, and that, that actually turned out to be really helpful. This will become more relevant later on, but because... The exact position I was in, uh, I couldn't recommend we buy Bitcoin in that job uh, because we didn't invest in the company I worked for didn't invest in that kind of thing. They only invested in actual businesses, which I think was really, really helpful in the long run because it forced me to think a lot more seriously about how Bitcoin would affect businesses, which I think is a lot more. I mean, maybe for for most people or for a lot of people, not all that interesting. But if you work in finance, then it, I, I think it's kind of self-explanatory why that's, you know, especially if you look at what's happened in the past, well, that was what, seven years ago. Um, that's way more interesting to think about than just, you know, what will the price do, I guess, which is all you can really, if you are making the case to buy Bitcoin, that's kind of the only thing you can really say. Um, so, yeah, so I started there. It's also relevant because when I got my first bonus there, I, I bought Bitcoin. So that was good. <laughs> so that would have been 2016. Um, and that I think is really key. I think probably all your listeners, will, you'll definitely get this. All of most of your listeners will appreciate this too, that you really do need to buy it to, again, not to understand it, but to like continue to understand it. Um, in part, I think because of the financial exposure, like you, you need, you need at least one cycle, right. To like fully get your head around, like, oh shit, this, this goes all over the place. Like this is, you know, and, and, and then if anything, that kind of helps you remove yourself from even thinking in dollars or pounds in my case i guess in the first place like i think that that's a really important sort of behavioral thing um but also i guess what, what would you call it like mechanically i think it's really important in that it's 
you know, it's, it's complete, how it actually works is completely different. You can take custody of it yourself and you can play around with it yourself. And I think that's a really important experience to have to, again, to continue to like push yourself down the rabbit hole. So that would have been about 2016 that that happened. And then probably the rest, I, I think I was more or less orange pilled by that point. I think the rest of the story is more about how I then made it relevant to my job and then how I kind of got more involved publicly as well. So I didn't, uh, I didn't really do anything publicly at all until I think around 2019, I forget exactly when this happened, but it was interestingly tied to work. So when 2017 had, when the insane crypto bubble had finally popped, um, I had gone by that point, it was about three years in the job. And I, as I mentioned before, I'd never really thought that Bitcoin was going to be that relevant. Um, it became relevant in a way that was like, kind of odd kind of in hindsight maybe even inappropriate which is that it it didn't affect anything that we could invest in at all or that we were at all likely to invest in like it never came up as something that i could finally time to tie to my job it came up because the hype was so ridiculous that towards the end of that cycle i guess if you want to call it that um the, the company I was working for was starting to get questions from our clients who are all like very big institutions. Right. But they were totally misinformed. They were, it, it was basically just reacting to the hype. I mean, they weren't like stupid questions. It was just, you know, what's going on. Right. And then nobody at my company knew what was going on either, but they, if they asked around enough, they discovered that I allegedly knew what was going on. But then that was even more annoying for me because I wasn't as kind of, virulently anti-shitcoining then as I am now but I was still a bit like I don't know about this it's mainly Bitcoin I, I care about so when these questions came through I didn't even really know how to answer them politely <laughs> I was just like I don't know I just think this is dumb like sorry if you wanted sorry if you wanted something more involved than that but what was key about that though is that when it did finally die down it made it more obvious to me that there there could now be grounds to push this a bit further like to see if this would be relevant like if I could basically if I could get away with working on this and kind of incorporating it more into my job um as it happens that that didn't really come true for probably another two years after that and that'll be the last thing I mentioned and sort of wrapping up my origin story but but it was it was enough to at least spend some time on it and when I started digging around and I, I kind of coincidentally, I knew a couple of people who were working in, you know, the industry. In some cases, they were more kind of crypto oriented, um, but they very quickly convinced me because I, you know, I explained all this to them. I'm like, oh, I might actually have a chance to take this more seriously now. They were basically like, you need to get Twitter. I, I didn't have Twitter at that point. I'd actually for like 10 years had this whole you know, prepackaged rant about how stupid I think Twitter is. So I, I just completely stayed away from it. But they're like, no, you need to get it. The first time or the first couple of times I heard that, I didn't really take it all that seriously. But it's one of those things where when every single person says it, you're like, okay, maybe they do know more than me about this. So I got Twitter and then that, that was probably, that was the start of like, okay, I'm going to try to be more, you know, publicly active. And it was kind of nice because the I, I feel like this this worked better than I could ever possibly have imagined. That literally the reason I got it, I mean, aside from all these people telling me I should get it, but my thinking, which was quite cynical, I think, but but you know, honest and in some ways as well, was like, okay, well, what I'm gonna do on Twitter and just in terms of being like out there in public at all is try to develop a reputation 
such that if this ever does become relevant for work, that will be advantageous. Um, so that that all kicked off in probably 2019. And then finally, in 2021, we got to a point where there were Bitcoin companies, which had finally become big enough that we could look at them seriously. And then I just felt, you know, wonderfully vindicated because it, it's just really nice. You start talking to these people and they already know who you are. And you're like, ah, that's great. I get, and the, I now have this joke as well, which didn't start as a joke, but it started as just like actually observing this, that when these companies are, are pitching to um, usually VCs, I guess, because they're mostly quite small and private, but, you know, just inst institutional money, right? Because there's very few people, this, this has got better in the past few years, but certainly a couple of years ago, there's very, very few people in that camp who actually understand Bitcoin, like at all, genuinely at all. The, the joke is that, you know, when they have their pitch deck, uh, if you tell them up front that you do actually understand Bitcoin or even better, they already know who you are. You just skip the first 30 pages, which are like, what is money? And you're like, no, we can like, we can go to the part where you tell me about your business. Like that's, we save a lot of time here. Um, so yeah. And then that's, um, I've now, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about this yet because it's not, we're, we haven't kind of publicly announced anything, but I have since left that job. Uh, on very good terms, though, I, I still, you know, chat to them about the all the stuff that I did when I was there. I'm trying to keep them on the right path, like steer them away from crypto nonsense. Um, but basically what happened was that when I did finally get the chance to look at those kinds of companies and, and to have it be relevant to my job, like at all, right, rather than just, you know, all of it being kind of a hobby on the side. It's like I get home from work and I go on Twitter and I'm like, ah, excellent. This is <laughs> I enjoy this more. Um, as soon as it did start to be relevant to my work. Uh, I just liked it so much that, you know, it, it, it went from, it went from 0% to maybe it's kind of hard to say, I guess, but still very small, like 5%, 10% or something on my time. Um, but as soon as I got that taste, I thought, no, I want this to be hundred percent. Like this is so much more fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've left to start, uh, again, I don't want to be too precise, but doing that on my own. <laughs> right. Perfect. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the first, if not the first uh, big announcement that you made when you were still at that company was the investment into Blockstream. Yeah, yeah, that was the first one that we did, yeah. That, I remember that announcement on Twitter. Oh, well, because it, you didn't believe it. <laughs> I, I, it, it was a, one of those turning points for me that is like, oh, shit. This really is starting to get real now, and I'd have oh, been okay, following sorry, you. you mean, sorry, I was being very uh, vain there. I thought you meant because you're like, wait, what? That's <laughs> how is he doing that? Because I did have a lot of that, and that was quite funny. Yep. Like leading in the in the I don't know month or so leading up to it, because the the all the terms of that were done months before there was any announcement. So in terms of my like work, it was over, and I was on to the next thing. Um, but when they were planning announcing it. I was actually getting quite nervous because that was the, I, I I knew that this would have to happen at some point. So it wasn't like I could, you know, it wasn't a shock and I couldn't argue against it, but it was just a bit nerve wracking. Like, you know, these two completely different, almost characters, I don't know, like sides of my life, which had never had anything to do with one another are now going to merge. And a lot of people are going to be shocked but, or pleasantly surprised. Let's say maybe shocked is a bit vain as well, but yeah, so that that was fun. I I I, I was nervous, but fun. No, oh, it was an amazing moment. And I'm trying to you you'll be able to tell me the timeline. When was that going on with regards to uh, Michael Saylor coming out and announcing MicroStrategy's purchase 
I, I feel like that was quite a lot before. I don't actually remember the timing, but I'm I'm thinking in terms of like COVID basically. So like, September you know, all, all, all the changes around COVID. Yeah. I remember that being relevant to like I remember my strategy happening mm-hmm. at that time. I might be completely misremembering it, but I think that was in 2020. I think that was in the summer Sep- of 2020. September 2020, yeah. Okay. The announcement. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was way after that. Uh, right. This was, okay. started talking to Blockstream, I think in maybe February of 21. And then the investment was wrapped up in uh, around May. And the announcement, I think, was in October. Something like right. that. Right. Okay. Oh, and here we are, man. Like um, a, a few years down the line, the, the Bitcoin venture capital space is growing. I hear more and mm. more news about yeah. it every day. Uh, it feels as though the money is um, getting unlocked again. Obviously, we've mm-hmm. been in a, a you know pretty downward spiral in the last uh, eighteen months or so. But Relay just announced uh, a few days ago that they've raised and uh, Ego Death, that's Jeff Booth's fund, has uh, has led that. They've mm-hmm. raised uh, an extra two and a half million dollars to carry on building out what they're doing. Uh, what are you feeling out there? Is that, um, I mean, you, you're obviously very mm. clued in on, on what's going on and still speaking to people in those circles. Yeah, there, I think there's a couple of things to say here. Like there's a lot of interesting directions you can take this in. One would be just to frame it a bit in like the context of, I don't know, VC investing in this sort of thing at all. Um, I'm surprised you didn't launch into a little rant on this so I can maybe just like do it mm-hmm. on your behalf. <laughs> I'm sure you've Please thought do. about it I'm sure you've talked about it before. The absolute insane amounts of money that have gone into crypto. Oh my God. And a majority of which, I I think that's fair to say, a majority of which are explicitly geared. Like it's not even really venture. It's it's just like hedge funds, effectively. It's like hedge funds operating on liquid tokens, Um, which is even that this might be a a little kind of, I don't know, heretical in in bitcoin circles but i i don't mind like really at all real crypto vcs because from my point of view they're just like they just have a different investment thesis right and you know if you're if you're a professional investor you you can't possibly be upset that other people disagree with you if anything it's a good thing like if everyone agrees with you then you're adding no value to anybody at all so i think people who actually invest in companies that are more crypto oriented than than they are towards bitcoin like i don't really have a problem with that i just don't think any of them are going to work like i think they'll all be bad investments in the long run um i absolutely despise to you know the, the <laughs> from the bottom of my heart i cannot wish more harm to uh shitcoin hedge funds uh because that is just to my mind is just blatantly a scam and so i i think it is worth differentiating those partly for those kind of i guess ethical reasons but also because as far as I'm aware, the vast majority of the money, because it, it, it usually just gets described as crypto, right? Like they're all just they're cobbled together as crypto. I think the vast majority has gone towards the shitcoin hedge fund side and obviously is like just inherently a scam and is mostly evaporated anyway. So that's like the backdrop that you have to see all of this against. Um, and I think a really, a kind of an obvious in some sense starting point or almost like metric if you want to compare numbers across the ecosystems is comparing what's happened with i mean the only real way to value the 
the crypto stuff, at least on the token side, is is just their own valuations, right? They're like market caps. Um, looking what's happened to them, especially over 2022, right? So, you know, Celsius and then BlockFi and then, well, I guess Luna started the whole thing, but Luna, then Celsius and BlockFi, then FTX. Um, it's it's just obvious. Do, do, right? do we throw Silvergate in there now? Um, I, I, maybe I actually don't really know that much about what's happened with them, so I don't want to. I don't want to comment uh, beyond what's sensible. But I know a lot about what happened with the other ones I mentioned. Right. <laughs> so I can rip on them very effectively. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just very obviously a bubble, right? It's it's all uh, and a largely financialized bubble too. You know, it was all levered on nothing and then popped, and then there's contagion, and then now it's all come down again. So you compare that to uh the lightning network which has i think a range of more interesting ways of measuring it which is probably a good sign in itself because it's like oh this is a real thing <laughs> that like people are finding utility in and like actually building out meaningful infrastructure in and basically what happens when you look at these side by side i think probably the best measure for the purposes of capturing funding rather than like utility the best measure is probably just uh like I don't know if, you, if you're supposed to call it value locked, because I think that's kind of a crypto thing, but like Bitcoin and lightning channels, right? Um, that over the same period, that goes up. It goes up a lot slower than the crypto valuations do, but it never goes down. It just steadily goes up and up and up and up and up. And that's, that's really, really interesting from an investor's perspective, because that strongly suggests that people are finding actual utility in it, right? It's it's not being driven by financial cycles. It's not being driven by leverage. It's not even really clear what leverage would mean in that context, I don't think. Maybe you have an idea, I don't know. But I, I it's not obvious to me. Um, and so that, I, I think that as the, I, obviously there are things in Bitcoin happening beyond Lightning, but Lightning I think is particularly interesting because it's it's clearly hit an inflection point in the past year or two in terms of basically just working. Like, I don't think you need to be all that technical about it. Like payments for the most part now just seem to work, uh, especially for businesses, given that there's, you know, it's not just a question of the network itself. It's, you know, what infrastructure has been built out, what services can you, um, you know, make part of what you're offering that will ensure that the payments just work. And where that's got to is it's, I think we're now into like a very healthy, almost self-reinforced, like a positive feedback loop, basically, where it's now possible to build businesses doing things on Lightning that just wouldn't have been possible two years ago, certainly not three years ago, mm -hmm. because the unreliability of, you know, whether it's not just individual payments, but probably more, more elaborate things like ensuring you actually have liquidity in the first place and managing that and having it, you know, having the management of that be, um, you know, capital efficient and so on like that. That's not, I don't want to say it's solved because it'll continue to get better, but it's got to a point where there is now, in fact, just an, an explosion of lightning based companies that are only newly possible. And that's just really exciting. Like that's, that I think is the, the, maybe not the best, but that's a, a very helpful framework to look at. And then especially if you're, again, just to, to tie it back to funding, you're comparing that to what was driving the crypto funding. And, you know, that most of these people are now just like, they have nothing left. Like they're all, they're bankrupt or, or their funds are closed or, you know, whatever. 
Yeah, uh, it's really interesting because I marked a, a, a sentence in your book here, which I'm going to read to you because this is exactly Ooh. what you're talking about right now. Uh, and maybe you wrote this one or maybe Sasha did. Shout out to uh, Sasha, obviously, <laughs> who co-wrote the book with you. Um, but that, that, that price metric that people are so fixated on, right? The price of Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah. If you can if you can disassociate your mind from that as an investor and then look at what's going on, number of users go up yeah. <laughs> every yeah, single yeah. day. That will never go down, ever. So if you base mm. your investment thesis on that alone, it's a no-brainer. Like mm -hmm. you, you, you can throw all of the other um, kind of investment thesis practices out of the window when you're looking at this thing as an investor. You're like, oh, right, I get I'd, it. I'd Let's add go. one thing to that, though. And this, this, I think, is a really interesting difference between um, I don't think it's an intrinsic thing. I don't think it's like Bitcoin makes you think this way and crypto doesn't. I think it's more of a cultural thing in terms of who's attracted to Bitcoin and who's attracted to crypto. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you said is correct so long as you have a sufficiently long time horizon. Yes. Which is also nice because for unrelated reasons, or well, maybe not unrelated, but completely different reasons, Bitcoin kind of makes you have in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if, I, I think this is actually, there's an interesting link here too, to like why there's no, and again, I'm not entirely sure what this even means. So I don't want to <laughs> take this with a pinch of salt. Like why there's no leverage on Lightning. Uh, or, or why there's why why these metrics are not influenced by leverage because you have to. And this actually goes back to you know I mentioned this in my like backstory. You need to have held through a cycle to like really get it because you need to get used to how volatile it is if you're denominating it in fiat. Yep. That you know if <laughs> if you have gone through that, you just know not to do it. Like it's just insane to actually be levered to the price of bitcoin which i think is there's I'm maybe kind of mixing met metaphors a little bit here but i think something along those lines like the fact that everybody involved has had this realization is why lightning isn't developed or is at least part of why lightning isn't developing that way but crypto absolutely did because <laughs> those people don't they, they have almost the exact opposite they have the you know ultra high time preference outlook of we need liquidity now like without any, with, with you know, completely having not not only abstracted away, but abstracted away so much that they've literally removed the necessity for anything productive to have created that liquidity. Bitcoin, Lightning, exactly the opposite attitude. One might ask where the yield comes from, Alex. <laughs> One might. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not wearing that shirt today, but I could go get it if you want to pause the recording. <laughs> No, um, what, what I was going to talk about was the uh, th this idea of the network growing. And uh, mm -hmm. in the book, uh, obviously, the subtitle is Essays on the Past and Future of Capitalism, which we want to get into because I want to be able to arm the plebs with this. Because when you're out there trying to orange pill your friends and family, you definitely are going to come up against those people that are going to turn around and say, well, capitalism is the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's we, We've got to smash that and we've got to arm people with this idea of, uh, what capitalism, capitalism actually is, the actual definition of it, and how you can rebut that argument in a, you know, mm -hmm. in a, a very good way. But just whilst we're talking about the network rather than the price of Bitcoin, you have a sentence here about social capital, which is so damn important. Mm -hmm. Social capital is the productive potential of social networks to create value. Bam. I, mean, <laughs> I like, think yeah. Sasha wrote that, by the way. 
but I agree with it. So it's okay. We can still talk about it. Yeah. Rip on that. Um, well, okay. In connection to funding lightning or just in <laughs> just, just, just us as people realizing that, mm. you know, we, the, the, the network is the capital here. Social capital yeah. is the productive potential of social networks to create value. Yeah. Okay, no, I think I, I can I can tie this to Bitcoin pretty quickly and pretty obviously. So what what we're getting at there, and in that whole chapter, at least maybe maybe a couple of chapters around it, is and it's, uh, to be honest, this is in some sense kind of the point of the entire book that we're we're trying to push. This leads nicely to what you want to get to, I know as well. We're trying to push a better understanding or appreciation of what capital is and how it ties to money i guess how, how money influences what kind of capital people will create and so there is a decent amount of argument that gets to this point that is probably not worth me trying to rattle off right now but but one of the things we drive at is that it's because money is basically i think like a, a coherent definition of it maybe this isn't exhaustive but it it has to capture what you're deciding to do with your time right and therefore capital is in some sense the output of those decisions and so that's maybe how they link right so how 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 effectively money works is you know, how accurately are people's decisions about their own time reflected in their actions? And, and you know, can you understand accurately what other people's actions mean in terms of their own time? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other sentence I was going to read to you yeah. is perfect here. <laughs> Capital is whatever can be transformed or used to produce goods that satisfy human wants. Yeah, yeah. So- yeah, that's, that's what I was time, trying to like time get being my way one. without without going on too much of a tangent. Um, that with that understanding of money, I think it's it's a bit fluffy. It's not really like proper economics, but it's helpful and fair to understand capital as the output of all of these decisions. And so, what I was building up to though is that um, I think it's key to the appreciation that we're trying to push that this doesn't need to just be uh you know a machine or whatever right it doesn't need to be what i guess an economist would call capital goods it obviously is that we're not discounting that but you can push this much much further by just thinking about if you i mean the 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 more obvious framing i guess is if you have a bad money right if you have a money that doesn't accurately capture decisions people want to make about their time what does that incentivize them to do and how do other, you know, we call them stocks of capital, but I guess don't want to maybe beg the question so much. How, how do other kinds of, I guess, social institutions that require the input of people's time in order to exist in the first place, how are they influenced by this, you know, this bad money um, corrupting information about how valuable time actually is and so it's kind of annoying actually i would have preferred if you pick one prior in our chain of reasoning to social capital because social capital is almost like the furthest you can push this along and like the most ethereal <laughs> in a way you know the most or certainly the most intangible the most removed from like things that you can i guess 
more easily measure and more easily tie to economic mm -hmm. activity. Right. But that doesn't mean it's any less important. It may even, I guess in some people's minds, it probably means it's more important, right? If you're if your money is so awful that it's albeit very indirectly, you know, corrupting the social fabric, that's pretty bad. Yep. That's you Which want to is where we're at today. Right? Money. <laughs> this is where we're at today, right? If yeah. you think about yeah. it. So yeah, you, you that would be like that social kind of capital would be to the end of the spectrum of building up from having a sound money, which is what we talk about mm -hmm. in the Bitcoin space all of the time and philosoph philosoph uh, philosophically as well. Like, oh my God, imagine what the world's going to look like in yeah. 20 to 40 yeah. years time when we can truly start building that social capital where my time is being valued by those around me that that value it. And I've built up um, you know, reputational capital for example, mm. which is another form of, of capital. So if you want to wind it all the way back to, you know, we have sound money now, what is capitalism? If you are having that argument with that guy or girl or friend or mum or dad sure. or auntie and uncle in the pub that turns around to you and says, we have to move away from the capitalist <laughs> society. Yeah. I, so I think this is more or less a direct quote. I, I don't, I don't think I remember it word for word, but it is very similar to uh, something we say at the start of, what, what is it, chapter three, which is conveniently titled, This is Not Capitalism. <laughs> right? <I> said, this <laughs> right now is not capitalism. Um, what we say is that for for capitalism, the, I, the, actually, first of all, there's an important caveat, which is I think it actually helps the argument, at least persuasive, not logically necessarily, but like if you're trying to persuade somebody it comes across as appropriately humble. If you do admit, first of all, that we're not putting this forward as like a panacea. We're, we're not saying that there is nothing wrong with any implementation of capitalism anywhere ever. All we're doing is insisting on at least a correct definition, like a helpful definition as a starting point. And that, so it's really more kind of framed in the negative, hence this is not capitalism, right? Um, if whatever you are proposing is capitalism, some system, political, economic system, whatever, it surely has to, at a minimum, directly incentivize, well, I was going to say growing, but probably maintaining is even more important, maintaining the stock of capital and only then growing it and certainly not consuming it, not, you know, not destroying it. Um, it can have whatever other nasty elements you want to throw in or that you think you have honestly observed in the world. But if it doesn't have that, then it's just not capitalism in the first place. It's something else. Yeah, your, your subtitle under that chapter is, uh, is pretty good. So yeah, it says, this is not capitalism. And then the subtitle is, this is your brain on central banking, oh, yeah. regulatory <laughs> capture and financialization. Yeah. So we've been gaslit into believing that we live under a capitalist society whereas mm. well i i i think we do in some respects like i i kind of not that you're doing this now but i do i do get a little irritated i guess on twitter maybe more than anything else of characterizing a lot of this as overly conspiratorial i think it's actually not only is it more accurate it's more fulfilling in a way to realize that a lot of it just follows from incompetence like it's not that there are evil anti-capitalists thwarting all attempts at production 
right? It's just that it's, it's the money, basically. I think that's, that's actually, that leads directly to like appreciating the value that Bitcoin can likely bring that there isn't some massive conspiracy we need to overturn. We just need to fix the money. Like it's, it's simpler than that. It's more easily achievable than that. Um, but uh, what was I going to I was going somewhere with that. Oh yeah, no, no, I remember that. I think there's, there's an interesting conflation that uh, we go into this a little bit. I, I think in that chapter, it probably is that chapter. Interesting conflation a lot of people make. And I think this is where this confusion about what capitalism should mean or does mean comes from. That is mostly an honest mistake. I think it's ignorance. I don't think it's like malice. That I think most people associate capitalism just with free trade. I think they, they imagine a lack of intervention in market processes as essentially constituting capitalism. Um, and I would argue that is necessary, but insufficient. And also kind of like, I think reasonably describes what we have now as well. So like, again, where I'm getting with where I'm going with this and where, you know, I think it's having this humility is, is helpful persuasively is that what we have now, it's not like we live under communism, right? It's, it's not, it's not that different from what would be required of capitalism um i i think it's pretty obvious that actually for the most part free markets are working very very well for us right we like we don't get too carried away about how like we're all serfs or anything like we we live in you know we're we're the most materially abundant people who have ever lived for the most part um but it because of the corruption of the incredibly poor money we have the free markets, but we don't have the correct incentives to maintain the capital stock. So that's that, that I think is where this confusion comes from. I think almost every normie has this and I understand why. What are the, uh, what, what's the backlash you've had from the book? Have you had anybody kind of, <laughs> well, uh, basically none. I think the, uh, the timing is probably appropriate though, because the, the book was published like three weeks before I left my TradFi job and I just worked for myself since then. So I kind of like, I don't know where any backlash would even come from, to be honest. That's that's the question. I mean, it, is it only Bitcoiners that are reading this or have you managed to find that's a, that's other a really people out there? I don't know. I mean, it's I, it just in case your, your listeners aren't aware, um, it was published by Bitcoin Magazine. Um, which was amazing because it meant, you know, they covered the costs of it. Uh, they like publicized the crap out of it in a way that I would never be able to do. They have, I don't even know how much bigger their reach is in mind, but probably a hundred, a thousand times. I don't know. Um, so I actually, I, I really don't know who the average reader of this is. I mean, I've obviously, you know, I've, you included, a lot of people who I knew before anyway, and in many cases, I saw you were probably you know, instrumental in even developing the ideas that went into the book. I've obviously talked to them about it, but that's a tiny sample of you know, the number of people who've actually read it. So I I don't know. What about the articles? Because this did stem from the articles, right? You The, the Bitcoin mm -hmm. is Venice series that's, uh, that you put out there, mm -hmm. Bitcoin is Ariadne and everything um, within, within that. Yeah. Did you get any kind of backlash from that at all even, even there i don't really think so because so i think in in that case it almost certainly was only bitcoiners who read right. it i think that's a, that's a major difference from the book that because mm -hmm. that was just my medium it was you know it was me promoting it on twitter to the 
you know, 99% of my followers who follow <laughs> me because of Bitcoin as opposed to something else. Um, so yeah, not, not really any backlash at all. I don't think it, it it's, it's weird though, because I, I would very much welcome that. I'm really interested in what the counter argument is, but I think just because of the way it got out there, it was unlikely to attract one very interesting contrast, but I know that we need to go into this now, if you didn't want to, but to only the strong survive, which is the base, like we're very polite in the way we speak throughout that piece, but basically crypto's bullshit. Um, that got a lot of pushback. I, and some of it helpful actually, because a, a decent amount of it was like, just, you know, you, this point you made, this thing you said, like, doesn't really make sense shows you didn't understand it. And I, I welcome that. Like, that was great. That's, and, you know, and then I fixed it and then uploaded a new one. <laughs> All right. Okay. Do you, do you want to get into that then? Because this is where we do oh, start I, learning. I, only if you want to. It's quite, a, a, the connection was the writing, not the subject matter. <laughs> right. Okay. Well then, if we just stick to uh, to, to capitalism uh, and this book, you drew on so many different uh, other people's work mm. throughout the book. So how many books have you read on this stuff, mate? Like, seriously. <laughs> I because you said, I like you said, the books, beginning, so you said at the beginning as well that you were already widely read in Austrian economics by the time you were in uh, university. So that there's clearly... Oh, I mean, to be fair, so that that's a complete coincidence. That's, I don't want people to misinterpret that. That, that didn't happen because, for example, um, I don't know, I just read like everything in economics ever and decided that Austrian economics was the best or I, I'm actually glad you bring this up because I'm now remembering it, why this happened <laughs> which is quite funny I, I don't think I've actually ever told this story before I haven't thought about it in a really long time the reason I was well read in Austrian economics was that when I was in high school I took economics as a uh, a woman would have been like a Scottish hire so it's like a levels basically for probably most of your listeners know what that means uh, but it works slightly differently in Scotland. They all have different names. So I, I, I did economics as like, a, I don't know, I was probably 14 or 15 at the time um, towards the end of high school. And as I have since discovered is like an incredibly common occurrence, not, not even just amongst Bitcoiners, but basically people who can think, like people who like know how to think for themselves. They, they find that they, so the way that economics is taught when it's at like such a basic level, I, I think this is probably also true to some extent in, uh, like the earlier years of university, but certainly in high school, the, the modules as such are basically just micro and macro, right? And and then the reaction I was saying, like almost everybody has who knows how to think is all the micro stuff is fine and makes sense. And then all the macro stuff is complete nonsense. And But like, you don't even know why necessarily. You're just like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Like you just, you explained it, teacher or, or book, but like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. So yeah, I, I was 15 or something at the time when this happened. And I, I told my dad about it and he just laughed and he's exceptionally well-read. He's obviously much, much older than me. And um, he's had a lot longer time to think about this stuff. Uh, he just laughed and gave me, I forget which book exactly. I think it might've been socialism by Mises. Um, but I think that was that was like a gimmick because he had it to hand. <laughs> but but it, it was him who was like, just read this. 
you'll be fine. <laughs> I was like, great, thanks, Dad. <laughs> so that's how that happened, by the way. Awesome. That's, that's like why I, I was told to by somebody smarter and better read than me. So that's to amazing. Wrap up that tension. Well, I and look at the difference that that made. And it, just two nights ago, this happened in uh, in our household. I handed my oldest daughter the Fiat Standard after. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> after a heated discussion, it's, at the it's a rite of passage as a parent. <laughs> It truly is. And yeah, I can only hope that that has the right effect uh, over the years to come. Um, who knows? Yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry, you were saying we read a lot of books. There's a lot yes, of influences that went in. A lot of influences in the text. Uh, you are obviously drawing on uh, uh, many people's work. Do you want to shout out the people that... Um... Oh, yeah, definitely. I think this is actually a super helpful way of advertising the book to people who aren't necessarily Bitcoiners. I've done this quite a few times. Usually... In, or maybe once or twice on Twitter, but that sort of defeats purpose because, again, almost everyone who follows me on Twitter is because of Bitcoin. Um, but I've been lucky enough to just have like random introductions to basically people who are like really interesting, really well known. A um, couple of them, actually, I'm just thinking back now, a couple of them were actually at the Bitcoin conference because I was on a panel with a bunch of much, much more famous people than me. Um, but I gave them a copy of the book and I was like, well, how do I sell this without, you know, sounding like a nut? Um, so yes, yeah, so the, the the way I like to describe it is basically that, well, one, having Bitcoin in the title is kind of clickbait because it's not really, it's like Bitcoin's relevant to it. But, you know, as we've kind of gone over this a little bit, even in this chat, that is really more about how to think about capital properly. So that's kind of getting that out of the way. Um, I think it's it's very nicely a combination. It's, it's almost like it's me and Sasha thinking, okay, what would Wendell Berry Jane Jacobs, James Scott, Friedrich Hayek, and have I missed anyone? I think they're probably the most important ones. Maybe Roger Scruton, he gets a few mentions. Um, no, mainly, mainly, yeah, mainly the first few. You got so, yeah, Soto, Barry, you got Soto in there as well. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, I suppose, but only really to make one point though. Um, I, I, th I think what was honestly more interesting, what we, we went out our way to do is that, so specifically James Scott, Jane Jacobs mm -hmm. and Wendell Berry, I feel like I'm missing someone there, there, there may be one more, but they, their influence comes up repeatedly. They comes up a lot. So if, if you at all like them, if you're familiar with their thinking and find them interesting, hopefully you will also like this i know so it's basically so that all those people like what would they think about bitcoin that's kind of what we're going for i know who you're missing and i'm gonna give you a little uh hint okay uh, bitcoin is halal yeah no i thought about that so um tarek el Dawani, yeah um i didn't want to mention him though because i don't think anybody knows who he is <laughs> <laughs> which is a shame like they should i think um well let's let's get into that because i think good. it's such an interesting topic uh, and this was the the whole theme of your talk at the bitcoin honey badger in yeah yeah, yeah uh, was, in yeah. riga um so let's flesh this out because i had the uh, the sure, founder of yeah. coinbits on the other day uh maha who's doing an amazing job at coinbits uh, and i'm really looking forward to releasing that episode and um he he talked about this at length because this you know is directly related to his religion mm. and when when people see that that there's like how many billions of people that yeah, have been living yeah, yeah. have been living under a um a monetary regime that does not suit the basic fundamental of their religious belief 
Mm-hmm. And this is what you picked up on with uh, Bitcoin is halal and your and your speech mm-hmm. in Riga. So your speech in Riga. Let, let's do that. Let's do that some justice because there's a lot to be said there. Okay, cool. Yeah. So so just to be clear, not uh, Eldowani specifically, just no. you know, Islamic finance. Yes. Cool. So yeah, I, I'm not actually sure where to start with this. There's oh, I tell you, I here here's an interesting point, right? I, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this to you before, actually. I feel like I probably have, but it's the but you'll love this basically. If you you probably thought about it yourself actually, that there's a lot of overlap between Islam. I'll say Islamic economics to make it that's more like the academic side rather than when I say Islamic finance, I usually mean the the practice. So there's a lot of overlap between Islamic economics and Austrian economics, but for completely different reasons so what i mean by that is that their their methodological starting points are completely different and yet they arrive at basically the same conclusions and i, mm. I find this absolutely fascinating and yeah I've, I've told a bunch of people about this i've told safe i've told i'm sure you know harris our fan as well he's um sort of yep. a, a an expert i guess in islamic finance who's since become a bitcoiner um I very briefly, Eldoani was on Safe's podcast and I mentioned it very briefly to him too, but I, I, I think he's he's not quite orange-pilled yet, so I don't know. But I, I'm really like, I want some, maybe I'll just get around to it at some point, but I want someone to write on this like seriously, like in an academic context to, to tease this out. Um, to give, uh, there, there's a few examples actually, but to give, I, I guess at least one example, is probably the most interesting one to me. Um. So in Austrian economics, one of the sort of, again, methodological tenets is uh, not just subjectivism, but it's often often characterized as like radical subjectivism, right? So there is literally nothing that you can ascribe any kind of objective value to. All value is uh, rooted in subjective experience and evidenced only in action, right? I, I assume you agree with that. Um, I also agree with that for what it's worth. Uh, a consequence of that, it's not so much a methodological thing as like an obvious um, conclusion. That doesn't seem like quite the right way of putting it. And uh, consequence is an obvious consequence of that, that all economic activity is radically uncertain, right? So you you cannot model or mathematize what will happen in the future with economic activity except the the only you can do it you can do it as a heuristic but you can't do it in any remotely scientific sense so you can say uh you know this is what's happened in the past for xyz reasons we don't think that's likely to change much therefore this is what we predict will happen in the future but that's very much like a you would do that if you needed to for business. It's not. It's not intellectually sound, right? It's not like it's not science, basically, um, and that follows from subjectivism because in order to even attempt to do that, you would need to ultimately, you know, model whatever that would even mean. What individual thinking, acting, reacting humans were going to do in the future, which is is kind of preposterous just from from foundational principles um so that's that's the austrian approach it's, it's rooted in in subjectivism the islamic approach is 
rooted I, I need to be careful how i say this because i'm i always throw in this caveat i'm not a muslim i'm not meaning to speak for them or it uh, i may get this slightly wrong um but the idea is effectively that if you try to predict the future it's a kind of a it's kind of blasphemy it's like it's not the the most egregious thing you can do but you're assuming for yourself a godlike ability, right? Mm -hmm. Only God or Allah can in fact see the future. And for you to act like you know what will happen is ethically wrong. And out of this, again, when you you're gonna throw in a couple of things about, you know, assume because that's kind of a, a general ethical precept i guess but if you throw in just basic stuff about you know economics people trading and so on people interacting you get to the same conclusion that you it, it, and actually maybe in maybe in islamic economics it's more like you shouldn't whereas in austrianism it's you can't but it's effectively the same thing in terms of deciding how to act and what to think and so on um and i think you you can maybe even tease it out a bit more that you can you can like read a little bit of the ethical side into the Austrian approach, not because it's necessary. Like you do need to be, I guess, uh, you need to keep the, the, the method methodological rigor with the Austrian approach that there isn't any, it's not normative, right? Um, but when you appreciate what the consequences are, I don't really think it's that big a leap. It's just maybe it's not precisely economics it's just like you know a common sense overlay on it that once you appreciate this you know the intellectual output of, of the austrian understanding i think you can also then just say like well then don't do that like if you do that you're stupid <laughs> you know <laughs> or like if you I, i'm not sure i go as far to say is that it's actually unethical but well you could though actually if you if you push it just a little bit further and and maybe included something like um maybe on the one hand, central planning, I guess you could, this would be a good way of explaining why it's unethical because you can't know. It's like the combination of, you know, you can't know, but you're forcing everyone else to pretend that you can, that's unethical. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe another interesting overlap with with Islamic economics and Islamic finance too, um, the, the wisdom or prudence, I guess, of various financial instruments that are, it's implicit in their construction that you can know the future to some extent. So I guess, again, the Austrian approach, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tease out that's wrong, but you can certainly tease out that's not smart. And if we apply that to today, for example, let's mm -hmm. apply um, this to what we see in economics in air quotes today. Uh, <laughs> you have your technical analysts your chartists that are trying <laughs> yeah, yeah. to plot the future right so that yeah. the, complete and utter nonsense in both the islamic and the austrian eyes you know that's just you mm. know a complete non-starter then apply it to like what, what's going on like central planning or like the social layer again Let, let's let's look at that and what happened the last two three years running these models to try and predict the future of yeah. what and how you're going to be living your life and you you are it is literally blasphemous and you are acting like a god and you mm -hmm. are you we can put point fingers directly at 
the who, the WEF, and people like this that would be seen in the, to, to you and I is complete and utter nonsense because mm. we understand it from the economic, um, excuse me, the Austrian side of things. But then when you overlay that with the Islamic, as you've just, uh, you know, it described, it's so starkly, ravingly obvious. <laughs> you think, yeah. We live in a clown world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I even have much to to add to that. I, I guess, oh, here's interesting. This, this is moving along a little bit that where this isn't remotely original, by the way, it's, it's, it's in the book, but even there we say like everybody kind of gets this. We stand uh, on the shoulders the, of where, giants, the, Alan. Sorry? We stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Um, the where this comes from is is physics envy, right? I'm sure your listeners probably all will have heard that phrase in different contexts. And it is why when in what I was just saying, I was I, I may not have succeeded, but I was doing my best to be very, very precise in describing what the the methodology is from the Austrian perspective and like teasing it out properly because ultimately this is it's it's a it's a methodological problem, right? If if you if your starting point for honestly like what economics even is like what is the subject matter you're attempting to study if it's i don't think you even need to land on you know precisely austrian principles to to realize that the idea that you can incorporate a physics envious approach is just insane it's it's so methodologically bankrupt that it's like what they there's a phrase I, I like to I'm pretty sure we use this in the book but I like to just bring it up whenever I can slip it into a conversation that the output of that approach is not even wrong which is a kind of a fun expression I think it has some Wikipedia page actually if people google not even wrong um but as opposed to something that is merely wrong like if you if something doesn't really require that much explanation like I came up with a good example the other day actually which is that you say two plus two is five that's wrong, right? Because it's it's four. Um, but if you say two plus two is red, that's not even wrong. There's like there's nothing you can do with it. And that's that's like what physics envy and, and economics says. It gets you this stuff that's not even wrong. Like you can you can't tweak it to fix it. You can't even understand what it is they think they're saying because they're not saying anything. What was it Vitalik said recently? That was, that was, I don't know. Why? That was classic. I proudly don't know what he said recently. Yeah. <laughs> but it was along these lines, this physics envy type of thing. It was basically a lot. We, we've redefined the laws of physics or something like that, but with Ethereum. Uh, you know, it, oh, it's just complete and utter nonsense. That's nice. <laughs> because they can do whatever they want. And uh, yeah, exactly. Thanks. <laughs> because they can. Um, you know, reorg the chain and, and fork and do all of yeah. this kind of stuff. It, okay. it was just complete and utter nonsense. Well, so, so, so Bitcoin is backed by physics mm -hmm. and Ethereum is backed by redefining <laughs> physics. I, I, I have a, I have a great tip by the way, for your listeners. So I need to credit um, Obi for this. So you know, Obi from Fetty yep. and uh, forget what he was at before that, the exchange and coin flow. I, now pretty involved in uh, Gridless as well. Really, really interesting guy. Um, he he sent me this link maybe a month, two months ago. Uh, it's Vitalik on, I think the podcast is called Bankless. That rings the bell, right? Mm. Uh, it's a crypto podcast. Um, 
and I think it was around the end of the year. I it shouldn't be too hard to find. I guess I don't. know. He might have been on that podcast a bunch of times, but basically, what he's talking about, like, where does he see Ethereum going from here? And it it all sounds pretty sensible and pretty plausible on the face of it. And to give him, I guess, some credit, he does come across as. I don't think he apologizes exactly, but he comes across as realizing that a lot of what has happened so far is just complete nonsense and scams, right? Like he doesn't avoid that. So the, so the, the, the framing of the discussion is like, okay, well, you know, what went wrong there and how do we go forward in a way that, you know, not only that doesn't happen, but what does happen is helpful. Um, and on the face of it, that's fine. But then the reason Obi said this to me in the first place is that it's very easy to interpret what, and of course he doesn't say this, but it's very easy to interpret what he does say as, okay, we need lightning and we need fediments. <laughs> there's maybe one or two other things where it's like, you're just describing. We, we need proof of work. Yeah. yeah. But he definitely doesn't say that, but um, yeah, you can, if, if, if you want some, uh, if you're feeling masochistic, I guess listeners can go dig that up. We should also shout out uh, because you you got a, a beautiful foreword in the book by Alex Gladstein, fellow Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. He's, uh, uh, yeah, no, he 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 was instrumental actually, not just in. I, I'm very grateful for him for doing the foreword, but he. Yeah, sorry, I realized we didn't cover this, and the listeners not may know uh, may not know. Um, he, I mean, I just know him anyway through you know Bitcoin. I guess everyone in Bitcoin Twitter knows everybody else. Um, but obviously he works at the HRF, you know, when he's not shitposting, he has a real job as well. Um, and he was instrumental in setting up the the way that the uh, the profits basically from the book work. So me and Sasha aren't making any money from it. Mm -hmm. the, the way it's all structured is that Bitcoin Magazine is publishing it. They put up all the upfront costs for, because it is a physical book, right? It's not just like PDF. So that costs money. They put up all those upfront costs. The profits from the book are going to pay back Bitcoin Magazine for those costs. But as soon as they're paid, so they won't make any money either. They, I think we've sold enough that they couldn't possibly have lost any. But um, as soon as they are made whole, everything after that goes to the HRF. And I think specifically the, I think it's called the Bitcoin Development Fund. They have a particular, you know, yes. Charitable instrument that is supposed to, it's it's for funding Bitcoin development. Um, so yeah, so uh, Alex set all that up. So very very grateful for all that too. I love that that, that this pleb movement and the way it all ties in so nicely. And yeah. uh, you know, the people that actually need it the most are going to end up getting that that sound money to to redesign our society. Yeah. All right. Last question. Oh, last question. Shit. How long have we been on? <laughs> already just got an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> if you had one and this could take us don't don't worry alan we could get into many, okay, so this, many side rabbit this, holes <laughs> yeah. the, the, the last 10 or so questions packed yeah. into one if you had one last orange pill left to give to somebody who would oh, you give it to fun. and why i might need to think about this i don't know hmm Okay, I have an answer that's like, we might need more answers. You might not be satisfied with this one because I don't think it's really the point of the question. Um, but Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. Because it perfectly fits with his character persona already. So it wouldn't be at all, you know, there'd be no, uh, I don't know, dissonance there, which is good. And he 
probably has the the biggest reach of you know anyone who and i think interested to be extra provocative about it he has a reach to the right people as well so i say reach i don't mean like you know he gets invited to davos or whatever like you know he gives he gives parliamentary briefings he, he his reach is plebs it's like no coiner plebs <laughs> pre-coiner plebs sorry to be polite about it so yeah he he would be excellent i feel like that's probably gonna happen sooner or later anyway because he has enough guests on who bring it up and then they don't talk about it for quite long enough i actually now i think about it though that i think he's probably better for yet another reason or you know really really good for yet another reason that exactly the format that he is you know known for and is excellent at and i think he's probably the most singularly responsible for popularizing in the first place that is excellent for bitcoin education i mean the fact like this is testament to that right like you can you need to talk about it a lot like for a long time in depth go down many individual rabbit holes you know not just not just the bitcoin rabbit hole i think there's like I don't know, probably at least five or ten um and his 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 platform i don't know if that's quite the right word but his platform is perfect for that so yeah he'd be good i don't know if that's at all what you meant but that strikes me yeah, as a good answer no absolutely it does and he's yeah often shouted out um not only just on this podcast as people's answers to that question but obviously all over twitter as well oh shit have people said that before yeah oh I, that's boring i need to i need to be more original well, this this is going to be a show about three hundred and thirty, Alan. So, like, you know. All right, all right, I tell you what, right here, I've got a great answer for you. Go on then, Taleb. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine. <laughs> I bet you no one said that oh, before. That dude. Oh my goodness. And if anybody wants to listen to Alan's or, or read his article, what's the name of the article? Um, a Tale of Two Talibs. A Tale of Two Talibs, yeah, which is a great read. If you have and... 18 hours to spare. <laughs> when you started writing that, did you just not stop? Were you, were you yeah, just... basically, I, I realized quite early on that it was going to be a lot longer than I had intended when I started. And it was basically like a deal with the devil at that point. It was like, okay, if I cut it down to something reasonable, it'll lose too much of what it needs. Therefore, I should just fucking go for it. <laughs> just be like, make this as long as I possibly can. And that will be part of the joke. <laughs> and if, yeah, go back and listen to, you were on Safer Dean's podcast, uh, ripping about that. Oh yeah, that was really funny. That was great. Uh, that all come about just after, um, well, that's how we met, right? Uh, on Safe's uh, little forum thing. Yeah, I think so. That sounds right. Yeah. Yep. Um, just hanging out. That was during COVID, right? Hanging yes. out on. <laughs> that was very much. Right. That's key, actually. Do you want me to quickly to give you the yeah. backstory of how that came about? Right. So, yeah. so the whole if people have never heard of this before. The the idea of the tale of two talibs is. There's kind of two things. It probably helps to know this in advance. Otherwise, you'd be a bit confused reading it. So one, it's written in his like writing style or attempted. It's like it's supposed to be satire. Um, I never write that way. It's really fun to do, actually, but I've kind of got it all out then. Um, but so one of his things, or it's now kind of become his key thing, I guess, more so on Twitter than, than in his writing, is just like 
aggressively debunking people except so well on the face of it that's what he does right he's like very he's very mean and and mm-hmm. caustic and, but quite funny at times to be fair but in his like you know he he i think debunk is probably the best word for what it is he's going for because he's like engaging people but it's almost like a trap because he has no intention of having like an honest conversation it's just, just mm-hmm. to try to humiliate them um so so with, yeah with that in mind that you know that, that that's what he does then the additional point i mean this becomes obvious you don't need to know this in advance but i just think he's a complete charlatan like i don't think he actually understands legitimately anything he talks mm-hmm. about so what this piece is is a comically long version of me writing as him but debunking him so that's that's what people are like really willing to to sink time into this um the way it came about was that it, it was a very fortuitous combination of things that just all happened at the same time basically so he happened to uh do this little routine he does where he like just goes after people on twitter in the space of about a month he did it with three different people or like three different areas i guess where completely coincidentally i happen to know like i personally happen to know a lot about this i could tell that he not only was wrong but he had no idea what he was talking about which is quite rare i guess but like i never had this thought before i'd always just find him kind of funny like kind of a dick but like i followed him you know i occasionally engaged mm-hmm. i don't think he ever engaged with me but you know i just like had you, know, you read his him, right because it was funny had you read um, his books beforehand but, yeah yeah I, th- I think i've read all his books yeah i, right, I actually okay. i really like um i really like skin in the game i think it's by far the best i think i even say that until two times actually that um well the, i i Again, part of the point of the title is that his Twitter persona is weirdly different from the books. And the books are actually really good. It's his Twitter persona or like public, more public persona that's insane. Um, But I'd seen him do this to other people and he does it in a way that exudes authority. Like it really does seem like he knows what he's talking. He's not not just mocking them. He's like out, uh, I don't know what the right verb would be. He's like portraying that he is more of an intellectual than them it's like it's an intellectual duel and the way it comes across is that he's so much smarter and so much better read that not only has he definitively disproven this person but that's where the license to also be a dick comes from it's like how dare you even argue with me about this so i'd seen that a lot and like find it find it kind of funny but then he did it three times with people who they are the experts in whatever this area is and that's why i follow them because i like that i'm interested in it and so it's like you know this person is like legitimately an expert i know quite a lot but not as much as them but that's why i follow them because i find it interesting and then as it turns out talib knows nothing at all and so the fact of it happening so quickly to one another just like it was like a light bulb it was like wait a minute is he like this with everything? Like, is it, maybe it isn't just these three, maybe it's, maybe there's more. And then, you know, I started digging and realized, no, it's literally everything. Like he has no idea what he's talking about ever. And, and in fact, this way of behaving is a very, I don't know to what extent it's deliberate, but it certainly works. It's like a brilliantly designed uh, 
approach to not only getting away with it but like not being found out i guess because it's like i think that the humiliation is key to make people go away rather than like actually argue with him and disprove him so yeah so that was thing number one this happened a bunch of times in quick succession um that was also immediately before lockdowns and so i think exactly what happened was that i had a holiday with my well then girlfriend now wife uh i had a holiday planned with her for march 2020 i think or maybe like early april 2020 and obviously that went to shit um but it went to shit in the most annoying way possible where uh it, it might even have been late march actually because we had to cancel it days before going so we couldn't really rebook anything. I mean, not that, you know, you can go anywhere, so it doesn't really matter, I guess. But um, we had to cancel it. But I'd already taken the time off work, and it was too late to change. I guess I maybe could have changed it, but equally, like, I did want a break. I just also wanted to go to the Dominican, not to sit upstairs. Um, so so this all, and this was happening at exactly the same time as what I just described with, you know, seeing what he was up to on Twitter. And so I ended up in this position of having this light bulb about, oh, wait, he might be completely full of shit on everything. At the exact same time that I was really mad about this holiday and suddenly had a free week. <laughs> so <laughs> this is basically how I, I just channeled all of this frustration <laughs> into writing this absurdly long, like deliberately comically long debunking of him. Love it, mate, and it's a, it's a great rip as well. That, that that podcast that you did with Saifedean, where uh, because he has the personal touches with him, where, where you know going out. Yeah, oh, well, well, Saif's and... mentioned in it, right? So one of yeah. the things um, this is actually good. This this fits the story really nicely because the the it's probably not worth even going into where they are, but the, you know I, I keep mentioning these three areas, right? So um, once I once the third one happened and I was like, the, the, wait a minute, come on, what what are the what are the three areas? There, there's uh, so well, they're just, they're sure. so obscure. That's what's funny about them. They're so obscure right. that I I actually also think that's part of it, and that he's he thinks that no one will care because like mm -hmm. hardly anyone understands this. So one was free banking, uh, and it was George Selgin that he was going after. Mm -hmm. One was uh, this really obscure. Well, you might uh, recognize this actually because we mentioned it in the book once or twice. Uh, ergodicity economics which is very interesting I, I won't say anything about it now because it's a massive rabbit hole but people should google that and just play around with it um, and then the third one was uh, shit what was it oh no it was um, VC it was like venture venture right. funding of tech mm -hmm. companies um, as soon I forget the order that they happened in but as soon as the third one happened and, it was, you know, I had the light bulb and I like snapped basically. I was thinking, okay, well, what else has he written about that I also maybe know about that I can go back and check and see if he really understood it or not. And the foreword to the Bitcoin standard yes. was what immediately came to mind. So I yep. literally, and I have it on my shelf. So I just went yep. over, picked it up, started reading it. I was like, oh my God, mm -hmm. this makes no sense. Nothing. No sense at all. Yeah. Like, absolutely none and i remember we well, that were was on a pivotal forum. actually the, the the bitcoin standard played an important role in my talent yeah. journey and that was one of the questions that uh i remember asking safe on one of those forum calls that we were all together i'm like 
did he actually read the book before he wrote and yeah. he's like nope <laughs> oh well yeah so this is the other i i don't know like safe may well have arrived at that on his own but i i concluded that and mm -hmm. wrote it in the taleb piece because mm -hmm. it is actually good i mentioned this by the way um because george selgin is referenced in the bitcoin standard because if you know who he is that's not remotely surprising like he has to be referenced therefore he is uh like that's not remotely controversial on its own but in his uh in in taleb's engagement with selgin on Twitter that I was witnessing and being like, wait a minute, what the fuck's going on here? Uh, Taleb said something to the effect of like, I have no idea who you are. So I was like, but wait a minute, you wrote a foreword to a book that mm -hmm. he's in and is like quite pivotal. Well, it, no, it's he, he himself is not pivotal to it. It's more like, if you're familiar with the subject matter, you, you know why he's in there. Mm -hmm. So like, how could you possibly not know who he is unless you didn't read the book so there you go <laughs> voila oh we are surrounded by well everyone's a scammer right That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh quote of the year i love that that all came from my complete joke answer i only said that to trigger you i don't want to argue <laughs> oh no i have a great answer i have a great this is like i should go immediately because it's literally on my website I, I, my, I, my website's completely useless. It's basically just like a bibliography of stuff I've written. Uh, yep. But, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, I'm so glad I remember this too. Uh, other than that, it is, <laughs> I'm quite proud of this. My, my website is called uncerto.com. Uncerto. Yeah, because, which is also making fun of Talib. I actually think I bought that domain name at the same time I was doing all of this. <laughs> Because he refers, I don't know if your listeners may not know this, but he, he refers to his collection of writings as the inserto, which is just a, like a wanky Talib thing to do because it's like derived from some Latin. I don't think it actually even means anything in Latin, but it's like the root is a, it's about uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's his big thing. So, uh, yeah, this actually, this came from a Twitter follower because I think I just asked like completely jokingly, anybody got any funny ideas for my for a, a name for my website and someone's like uncertain yeah anyway sorry i did i remember that because i was thinking about the website um i want the orange pill tove low that's my answer i guarantee nobody else has said that you know who is tove low uh, he's a pop singer uh, okay a famous scottish pop singer no i think she's swedish um she's yeah she's pretty famous she's like yeah, she's not like musically amazing or anything. She's just like pop singer. She's like she's had some some hits over the past couple of years. All right. Well, I'm gonna have to go listen now. Uh my 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 I'm sure my daughters know uh who she is. Oh yeah, go ask Lauren. Is she still around? Just can you shout on her? Uh no, she's she's <laughs> she's far away. I I would have to shout a long, long way through the house. I bet you she'll be very happy with my plan to orange pill Tovlo. <laughs> Right. Okay. I'm going to go play some music right now and uh, get to know and get her on the podcast and invite you on. <laughs> yeah, are you going to be, are you going to be at any of the conferences this year? Yeah. yeah I'll be in Miami. Yep. Have you got anything else planned? Europe? Uh, no, nothing. So to be honest, I, in between like September, I think, I think Honey Badger is in September. Yes. Uh, September until November. 
I went to so many conferences that I basically just exhausted myself and I was almost never at home. Uh, and so I'm kind of easing off. Yeah. I'm sure I will. I'll be back at some, but I'm never, I'm never doing that intense, uh, a, a circuit again. Right. Okay. Well, there's going to be, um, BTC Prague in June. Uh, are you going to be getting across to that? Uh, one? hopefully. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I, I know the guys who are doing that really well. I've, I've been chatting with them about just like roping other people into it. So that, that yeah. one does look really fun though. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'll definitely see you in Miami. Hope to see you uh, in June as well in Prague and around and about all the other ones. Uh, what's the last thing? What what project or company in Bitcoin is the most exciting to you for the next year or two? Oh, cool. But do you mean like, does it have to be underrated? Because I mean, if I just say lightning, that's that's boring. Yeah, something underrated, bubbling under the surface that you think is hmm. going to explode onto the scene and make a huge difference. I kind of want to say Noster, but I feel like that's a bit of a cliche at this point as well. It's not very original. I need to I need to pick something more more interesting. Um, oh, I've got a great answer actually. It's unfortunately it's not remotely original. I'm just borrowing this wholesale from uh Rob Hamilton. Um miniscript. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Or I have been led to believe that is very cool. Um, oh, explain. I have another I have another good one actually. Um this is a bit more out there uh and is a bit like I could see this being a little controversial. I mean, not that anybody cares that I think it, that's not what I mean, but like the issue itself is maybe a bit controversial. Um, at some point this year, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, simplicity is going to be merged into liquid. And I think that's very, very exciting. Not in, not because anything immediately will follow from that. Cause to some extent liquids a bit like, I don't know. I'm actually a massive liquid bull, but I, you have to admit, like, it hasn't really done anything yet. Um, but playing, people playing around with it, and maybe not even doing anything specific with it, but like it not breaking liquid would be very, very encouraging because then we can start to think of a roadmap for getting into Bitcoin as well. That's the controversial part. Cause like, I can imagine a lot of people not wanting that. And I'm not even arguing for that necessarily. I actually think this way of doing it is probably probably like the healthiest soft fork approach anyway, that you test the shit out of it in, in an environment that is very similar and has a reasonable amount of actual money at stake. So like, you know, the incentives are there to some extent. Um, but it'll, it'll be really fun to just watch what happens with that. So that's that's my highly you know, off-piste answer. So for for those of us that are not up to speed on what simplicity is, could you give us the, the lowdown? So it's, I, I don't know a good, like very quick description because in all the chats that I've had with Blockstream people about this, they, they're always very rightfully pedantic about how they describe it because it's, it's tempting to say that it's like Bitcoin's solidity. So solidity is the programming language for, or the scripting language, I guess, for, for Ethereum. Um, but that's inaccurate for a couple of reasons. So one is that for, <laughs> this is like, 
incredibly um, sort of minutia of computer science, but it, it's not technically Turing complete. You can't do absolute, you can't program absolutely anything with it. Uh, the main reason is really interesting. It, it, it's very expressive, basically, right? It's significantly more expressive than than Bitcoin script is, and and it, anything that you're currently capable of doing in Liquid, which is itself a bit more expressive than than in Bitcoin, because they can just put opcodes in for the fun of it. Um, but the the main thing, and like the major difference from any you know smart contracting that exists in crypto, I'm doing this very much on purpose because it's the air quotes, like, <laughs> like mostly bullshit, um, is that. It is, I forget the exact, uh, there, there is like a, a computer science sort of terminology for this. It's um, machine provable, I think is what it's called. Like you, you can you can mathematically prove what it is going to do before you, before you do it, basically. Um, and so it should be extremely secure. It, it should be, you know, Bitcoin worthy, basically. Um, but I mean, it may never get into Bitcoin. It may not mm. even be a good thing to get into Bitcoin, but it is coming to liquid and that'll be fun to watch. And that's where it's going to get tested. That a very good testing ground before we enter into the years of, uh, you know, toing and froing between the, de the yeah. devs. The, and to, just to, to, to give it a bit more like, um, I can put this in a context that makes it more approachable rather than it all sounding so kind of jargony and opaque. Um, Adam Back in particular is excited about simplicity. He, I mean, he's well. I don't mean to speak for him, but he's you know he's also well aware of all the issues around getting into Bitcoin and whether that's even a good idea or not. It may not be, but the reason he's so excited is that he. I've heard him refer. To, I mean, he's he's said it to me, but he said it on stage a couple of times as well. That if that could be achieved, it would be the last fork. There would be no need for any other, um, you know, improvement to the protocol because that would basically have given enough expressibility for it, it, like any, any any proposal would at that point just become a script, not an opcode. Oh man! It, so that that's, that's actually really interesting point. If people want to dig into this, and again, I'm not at all claiming that like I'm a technical I, I i'm not even really that technical to begin with but i'm not an expert on this i'm merely repeating the enthusiasm of others uh, <laughs> but there is an angle there that is is super relevant to concern about protocol ossification which is that this would obviously be a massive change to make and it would be very contentious and again i'm reiterating over and over again that it, like it may not even be a good idea like that may be the conclusion that mm -hmm. we come to however in favor of the proposal would be this idea that actually you'd never have to do this ever again. Like it would, it would completely remove any contentiousness about any further change. So that's, a, that's obviously never applied before. Like I, I think, I guess probably the, the, the most that's like in that camp, I guess would be taproot just, just in the sense of like, opening up the most new things as we've now learned some of which weren't even intentional. Um, but yeah, so th this would, this would be, I mean, it probably won't even happen for like 10 years or something, but this would be a very different discussion about how to get, if or how to get this in. All right, man. Well, like I say, exciting times coming down the pipe for Bitcoin as always. And 
But lightning's still cool. So that's that's yeah, the, and light, <laughs> the more normal answer. Lightning. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent work. Bitcoin is Venice. Essays on the past and future of capitalism. So please, anybody that's listening, if they've not picked up a copy of the book, as Alan has uh, already explained, uh, it will end up going towards the uh, HRF and you get to learn more about Bitcoin and capitalism. So you can just just to mention as well, though, you can also get it for free. Uh, you can just get it on my site as a PDF if you want. Uh, I think you can buy an ebook, uh, like if you if you want that specifically for like a Kindle, I guess. Um, but mm-hmm. you can just get it for free if you want to. And where should people reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Uh, just Twitter DMs. They're open. Excellent. Or well, well, actually, to be fair, though, it, th- this might be, I don't know what portion of your audience will be excited about this yet, but I'm deliberately spending less and less time there because Noster is way more fun. So right. you can find me on Noster as well. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for coming on, mate, and everything that you're doing in the Bitcoin space, everything you've done, and uh, really looking forward to starting this fund and um, exciting times. Yeah, thanks very much. Take care. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alan Farrington. If you've not read his work before, you can go right ahead and find the article, download that. The original article is brilliant. Or if you want to support his work, you can, of course, buy the book, Bitcoin is Venice. As you heard, he has lots of interesting takes, lots of great ideas, very well read about Austrian economics, about economics in general, uh, and uh, some some brilliant takes, and, and how his thoughts and mind has been shaped as well over the last few years of living through the nonsense of clown world for the last three years, and obviously falling down the rabbit hole. As many of us have been doing this, you've probably found that your brain has been completely retuned, your contact list has probably been completely rewritten, and you're thinking in different ways to what you ever ever thought before or ever perhaps even thought possible to you i know i found myself in conversations i thought i'd never be party or uh, party to uh, and um, still live in the uh, imposter syndrome uh, of my own monkey mind of you know who who am i to be talking like this about such a subject but if we do not have these discussions and we do not find and connect with each other we won't be able to explore them with uh, with integrity which is what i love about the bitcoin space and bitcoin errors in general uh, and you know where i'm leading with this get out there and meet them download orange pill app is going from strength to strength if you're following on twitter the orange pill app account you'll see that every day there's something new uh there's a great great amount of meme content coming out of the uh Uh, the the media team Uh, and it's just brilliant to be in this space and meeting so many of you plebs uh, at the conferences as well Uh, we've got like I said at the beginning of the show BTC Prague is next week don't be a homo succumb to your FOMO that's all I can say let your FOMO and your gut instinct tell you you need to be at that conference and meeting plebs if you use the code BITTEN, you will get 10% off. If you can't make this one for whatever reason, look around. Go on Orange Pill app. Go to the events page. Find a meetup near you. It's free to list these events. You do not even have to be on the platform to list the events. You as a member have access to that. It's only $2.99 per month. 
If it doesn't work out for you for the first couple of months, cancel that subscription, come back in six months and see if anything has changed because it is getting more and more populated each day. If you want to get to a Liberty Now Lifetime conference, that is in October. That's held by Free Cities Foundation. This is a lot smaller. It's not a huge Bitcoin conference. It is a parallel structures conference. So you get to meet people from all walks of life who are building different structures across the board. Whether that is intentional community living, whether that is seasteading, whether that is citadels out in the countryside, homesteading, you name it. Alternative education, alternative medicine, healthcare, it's all there. That's Liberty Now Lifetime, and you can get a 10% discount using the code BITTEN. Uh, you know where to stack, I'm sure. If you do not, then make sure you check out Swan Bitcoin in the US, Relay, R-E-L-A-I, across Europe, Coin Corner across Europe and the UK, because they are. it's easy just to send your pounds across to them, make transactions very, very quickly. And uh, HODL HODL, if you want that KYC-free experience, they also have their lending platform. So that's a global trading and lending platform. And they are throwing the Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin-only conference in Riga in Latvia, first week of September. Get your tickets. Use code BITTEN for 10% discount. And that's pretty much it, I think, guys. Other than up your privacy, do your homework, do your research. Is CoinJoin a thing that you might want to start considering? If so, wasabiwallet.io is a good place to go and start educating yourself with that and playing around with it. You can listen to some of the episodes I've done with Max Hillebrand in the past, and I'll be doing a few more as we uh, as we go forward through this year, looking into that specific topic. And use the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only hardware wallet to secure your Bitcoin. Get them off the exchanges. Make sure you are in control, not your keys, not your coins. You can hit the link in the show notes, shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten, who have rebranded now to Bitbox, and they are going to be in Prague next week as well. So make sure you say hi.